Our ideas are new. It's easy to forget that not so long ago, you lived where your parents lived, you did the job your parents did, and you married who your parents would tell you to marry. Not many people got the chance to move around that much. You didn't have very much leisure time. You worked 61 hours a day on a farm, and the product of your labour belonged to your feudal lord. So don't get too downhearted when you remember that only 0.1% of us or less are libertarians. Our ideas are very new. I am away in France this week. Welcome to episode 81 of the Scottish Liberty Podcast. Tom is in England. So this is my appearance on a show called Subversion with Trey Weaver. I was very pleased with it and I hope you will like it too. Uh, I guess I'd just like to start by kind of asking you, how did you get involved in libertarianism? How did these ideas appeal to you? Well, I was already quite a free-thinking person, although I would have definitely identified left of center politically. I thought I was a bit of a radical. I didn't adhere fully to the left-wing program. In fact, even then I was skeptical about things like, say, gun control, and I was involved in reading about conspiracies and heard about the Federal Reserve and central banks, and I thought that was shocking, but it seemed like the left-wing didn't really address those issues for some reason, which was weird to me, because you'd think, well, this is such a flagrant abuse of power. Um, I guess I was looking, searching for the truth, And I started putting out some videos on YouTube of things I'd learned, but from, let's say, what you'd call a progressive perspective, although that word wasn't commonly used, especially not in the UK at the time. Um, We didn't even use liberal in the UK very often. It was really left or or right we tended to use. Um, Then, yeah, I guess Ron Paul came on the scene uh, about conversion with this, it's about 2007, and he was very well-spoken, and the first right-winger I ever heard of that was against the war and against the surveillance state as well. Like, for me, I was given this package deal. If you were left-wing, then you were against the war, and you were for civil liberties, and you were, therefore, I must be against capitalism. Although I would have said I was I was for a mixed economy, let's say, well-regulated capitalism. I wasn't an out-and-out socialist and then if you were on the right well then you must be for the war you're for an authoritarian approach to crime to drugs and of course you're pro-capitalist so that was that was those were the package deals i was offered and ron paul really shattered that but i listened to him and i learned from him but i didn't become a libertarian just like that it took a couple of years of people gatecrashing my YouTube channel, arguing with me, sending me to videos, and I, I listened and I, I learned more and more and more, and I became a voluntarist anarchist, an anarcha- anarcho-capitalist eventually. First I just identified as an anarchist, and then I um, I guess I just kept on reading and researching, and I've, I ran out of excuses. I just became gradually, gradually more and more libertarian. <laughs> Sure. And man, a lot of that sounds so familiar to my own story. I mean, I was sort of raised a progressive myself, especially in, you know, I was a teenager coming to adulthood during the Bush administration. So, 
you know, naturally you have as a teenager, just this, you know, and it just regardless of the generation that I'm in or anything like that, it's just the spirit of being young is sort of rebellious, right? So you see this regime that has control in your country that you live in your whole adult, you know, young adult life when you're coming to age. And, you know, I just thought I had it all figured out. And I remember, um, I don't know, a friend of mine had brought up a, a Ron Paul video and I don't know, it was something, the word capitalism came up and I remember distinctly, um, you know, saying something like, you know, negative about capitalism. And my friend just kind of pushed me and was like, do you even know what that is? Like, I I totally didn't. Um, So, and then, and then, yeah, I mean, I went down a rabbit hole myself of, I saw the video of Ron Paul beating Rudy Giuliani on the debate stage. And I think it was probably the first time that I realized that there was such thing as an anti-war movement on the right. So, so yeah, a lot of overlap there in uh, our experience coming to libertarianism there. Right, and it's just as well that you mentioned the Bush thing because I never really thought of it well like that before. But during that period, I mean, those people like Cheney and Rumsfeld were so flagrantly evil and they didn't even put a nice face on it. Um, so around that time, it seemed to me like there was a big movement, there was a convergence, and it was largely on the left, um, but not not exclusively. Uh, I guess you had more right-wing forces marshaled by the conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones, but there seemed to be a movement that was for liberty. I don't know if it was for libertarianism. It looked like that. It looked like people were getting activized and they weren't the kind of violent people who are opposing Trump. Don't get me wrong, I'm not at all a a Trump fan, but you see these, this new brand of leftist, which is, which are quick to violence, the whole Antifa thing and the, and the, you know, they'd be not, they'd be so happy if Trump got impeached, even if it created a civil war because they're ideologically motivated. Under Bush, it wasn't clear that this so-called anti-war movement was just an anti-Bush, an anti-right movement. It wasn't until Obama got in and basically continued the Bush doctrine overseas, continued the surveillance state, and everything he said he wouldn't do um, he, he, he continued, uh, then it became more and more obvious that this movement, which seemed young and full of energy and to, to devoted to creating a more just order under Bush, which was inspired by the foreign invasions, was really not, not what it promised to be. You know, there was so much energy around then and I really believed in it. I really believed that there was a there was an awakening happening. And I suppose there was. It's just not to the extent we've seen because, I mean, must be in the last 10 years since I've become a libertarian, there must be hundreds of times as many libertarians as there were now uh, back then. There must be so many more of us. But we're still t- we're we're still as a percentage of the population less than zero point one percent. Yeah, and that's you know 
it, it can be a kind of a sad prospect when you've been devoting your life and your moral code to this um to this axiom of non-aggression you know for most of our lives and you know it can feel really discouraging when um when we seem like such a minority still but you know and this sort of brings up a topic that I've been trying to hash this out a lot myself that you know a lot of people especially in America we have this sort of fetishization with if you don't like the political system you just have to get involved in it and change it kind of from the inside and I don't know I'm starting to kind of think that the nature of what libertarianism is sort of begets um people being turned off to it in a political sense because we aren't we aren't offering some sort of answer we're That's offering right. several different answers that we should all discover uh during yes. the the course of the discovery of spontaneous order um indeed yeah um so and that's go ahead and that's that's a hard sell because if you're a conservative or a socialist you know someone comes to you and says well what would you do about crime in your ideal society and you're like here's my platform and you can lay it out and we have to say something like well you know it depends well the market provides we don't really know the right answer but the combined genius of humanity will test and over time the best will win out and the poor solution do you know what i mean what would education look and like in your society well here here's what i've got to say as a socialist here's what i'll promise you i'll promise you the earth or as a or as a conservative we just need to be more strict on kids again you know we're just too loose right so there should be more discipline in the schools and then the grades will go up again that's easy to say but for us to say well you know the thing is, we know the schools are bad, but no one knows the best way to educate kids. But lots of people know some ways and people will start their own schools and uh, the uh, best practices will emerge and people who have good ideas will get successful and other schools will copy those ideas. And that's just too much unpredictability for people. People are risk averse and you need to actually study libertarianism for quite a long time before you get to realize that, see if you're truly risk averse, then you're going to want to be a libertarian. You're not really going to want to give that much power to a bunch of central planners because no one has the information to make good decisions on such a good scale. I mean, I had a great example come out of my mouth randomly when I was doing a show the other day, which is the baker on your street knows roughly how much white bread and brown bread and rye bread and of each kind of thing is bought each day. And even still, he'll need to throw things away and sometimes he won't cook enough of this cake uh, to meet the demand on a day. But he can best guess because he does it day in, day out. So imagine trying to do that for an entire economy. Who's got the information to know? And, and you just apply that to the schools or the hospitals or the anything that the state runs and it becomes clear that it's an impossible task you know to centrally plan an economy and yet and yet the idea still remains popular and i guess people don't broadly speaking go out their way to discover this information so you need to make it visible to people if, if you want and um, tease them, you know, get, pique their interest, 
tell them something cool, tell them a cool fact or something interesting. They're like, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I'd like to hear more. And if you see that spark of enthusiasm, then maybe you can teach them more. And some people just think they know it all already and will dismiss you out of hand. So I guess you kind of have to choose your battles. Right. And I don't know that I've actually ever got someone kind of completely on board with libertarianism, but I've certainly gotten people to think about things a lot differently. Um, I mean, I can't think of any big wins off the top of my head, but I mean, I've seen the gears turning in people's heads when I ask them the difficult questions about, you know, uh, just the general morality of interventionism. Because for me, uh, the anti-war uh, you know, position is is probably where it, what I care about the most. I mean, if we're going to talk about, um, you know, the the worst things that happen in the world, it's um, it, it all comes down to the the lack of respect for property rights and what bigger display of destruction of property and and included in property, I I include people and their bodies. Um, that, you know, other than just this massive bureaucracy that makes decisions on who, who to bomb and it's, it's becoming robots that are making those decisions even. I mean, they basically have a conspiracy theory algorithm that takes in metadata of all cell phone calls in a given place like, uh, Yemen and Afghanistan and people who are, you know, we've all heard of Kevin Bacon's, you know, seven, uh, uh, seven degrees of separation or whatever, you know, you can, you can make a case about pretty much anyone from metadata just by guilt by association. And, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it, that's just one area where I think I still at least have the ear of, of my progressive friends who make up a majority of my social network. In fact, um, is, is by continuing, I mean, I guess maybe that's other than just the moral thing, that's what I found strategically works best for me. Um, but I mean, I, I guess just to get specific on what's going on over there across the pond, I mean, you, you talked about the word liberal earlier, which, uh, to my knowledge overseas, that means conservative more or less. Um, so it's kind of funny in America, we have um, we, we've got a little bit of a different lexicon libertarian here in America means someone who's pro capitalist and, you know, pro gun and, uh, you know, against the federal government for the most part. I mean, <laughs> I, we both know what we would consider like the root of American libertarianism would be to its furthest log logical conclusion would be anarcho capitalism, but, you know, setting aside the purity, um, you know, American libertarianism is of the right. Um, whereas when you say libertarianism across the pond, uh, you're talking about anarcho-communism. So, I mean, do you even... Well, you were once, to be honest. What were you going to say? Uh, all I was going to say is, like, do you um, do you even self-identify as a libertarian over there, or does that just sort of confuse people as to where you're coming from? Really, the only usage of libertarian here now, if it ever gets used, is to mean what you mean in the States by it. Because although there was a time when libertarian meant an anarcho-communist, it's whoever used the word, because there were so few anarcho-communists. So most people here, when I became a libertarian, no one here knew the word, so I just said I was an anarchist. 
and then people would get more of an idea of what I meant. In the last couple of years, I've begun to self-identify as a libertarian, and I guess that's maybe because I met some other ones. I was the only libertarian I knew for many, many, many years. So, uh, and then I, I joined the Scottish Libertarian Party, even though I, I, I'm not that into political action myself, I thought it might be a good vehicle for spreading ideas. And so gradually, gradually, I began to say I was a libertarian, and I'm okay with that. Um, liberal doesn't really mean conservative here exactly. I mean, most people would understand that as somewhere... I guess the distinction would be here, if you're a liberal, you are for a mixed economy and regulation of the market by the government and maybe some things socialized uh, that would distinguish you from a socialist would be someone that uh, was was more radically left-wing than that so i guess you would probably consider yourself to be a centrist if you called yourself a liberal we have a, a party called the liberal democrats but in in a way all of the parties are left-wing because they're all status i'm not really sure that i would like to consider myself on the right as a libertarian particularly because that just because of the history of the usage of the word right uh, and you know i traditionally this is right up to obama the package deal was carved up that way that if you were on the right you were more pro-war more hawkish and also more uh for the surveillance state you know Mar margaret thatcher the conservative our most famous conservative prime minister um was big on <laughs> detention without trial and um you know, she wasn't exactly an ideological free marketeer either. I mean, uh, the right have uh, often advocated paternalistic policies, especially towards, you know, getting people off alcohol and uh, in terms of not really just looking down on the poor, really. Oh, oh they, they, they drink. We can't have these poor people drinking too much in the history of my, my nation. You know, the government should step in and do something about this sort of thing. Prostitution um, and these sort of things. The, the, the right is not really a well-defined ideology in fact if anything it's just been whatsoever's not the left so I, I guess as a libertarian i consider myself neither left nor right as uh, shakespeare said a plague on both your houses and i, I like to identify as neither left nor right uh, some people might disagree with that because i'm for capitalism i think traditionally the left is more coherent because they've got certain main holy cows holy cow one is um well basically equality and egalitarianism i think are the the main main values of the left and it's not like the right necessarily were against equality in all places at all times but it wasn't a primary value to them whereas the left have uh, and yeah as you say the usage of these words really um has varied through time so i uh, i just i guess it depends how you f define right wing you know at the end of the day that that's uh, it i think that the the spectrum itself i'm not going to say it's not without its uses it does have its uses but 
I don't think that it was created for people like us. You know, it, being able to give people these package deals is a very convenient way to make sure that everyone is confused on at least some issues. You know, the 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 right will want more government in some respects, and the left want more government in some respects. But what happens is. When a left-wing administration gets in, you get more government in all the ways that they want it, but you don't get less government in the ways they claim to want it. And the same happens when you get in a, a right-wing administration into power. They still increase the size of a government. I mean, Ronald Reagan, uh, the, the supposed hero of small government conservatism, I believe he increased the national debt by more than his seven predecessors put together. So he wasn't... A small government and guy in practice, he did cut taxes, but he didn't um, cut spending. So, yeah, I guess I just—I know I've gone on a massive rant, but I'm just wondering—I'm just wondering if, uh, as libertarians, our best bet is is to is to actually be saying, "No, we're this other thing." You know, we're out on the third wing, and. Um, Yes, there's something that we agree with the left on and there's something we agree with the right on and we're for capitalism, but it's not the same capitalism as the right because it's crony capitalism. They like protectionism and trade tariffs and they don't want to import things from poor countries because they're taking our jobs. You know, we're for, and they're, they're, we want an even playing field. We don't want the government to be in bed with big business. It's a different kind of capitalism from what you see now, where the government is basically handing out preferential treatments and contracts to lobbyists. You know, we agree that that is corrupt. Um, so I guess brand differentiation, maybe that's what it is. Or maybe just because I came from the left I, I, I uh, and I have certain... I mean, I, I've been going on for ages, but I just want to say, like, when I be first be, when I first became a libertarian, I really thought that libertarianism had far more affinity with the left than the right, because I thought we were very much against this concentration of power, which the left were. But remember, when I became a libertarian, this is circa 2010, so after two years of study. So, yeah, you're looking at that and going, um, since then... I feel more affinity, well, I just feel there's more we have in common with the right now, but I didn't feel like that was the case when I first became a libertarian, because it was still under the Bush, Bush years, and the, even in the beginning of the Obama, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, John McCain versus Obama, Obama says he's going to make a change, probably don't believe him, but you know, I'm going to flip a coin, uh, well, I, I mean, if I'm a betting man, I'm going to say that Obama's the lesser of two evils because John McCain openly wants, says stuff like he wants to bomb, 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 bomb Iran. You know what I mean? Yeah, So yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of like, go on. I, I was just going to say, I don't necessarily disagree with anything you said. And I, I think mm. I do sort of get myself into some trouble when I say, you know, that American libertarianism is, you know, on the on the right. And I guess when I say that, what I meant was just, you know, in the the typical you know, four quadrant political compass. That's, right. Oh, um, yeah, I see that. And and I just sent you a link to something called the Pornell chart. I don't know if you've seen this before, but it's a uh, it, it's a bit of a different political compass that I find, you know, I'm not sure that it necessarily is an objective truth and neither is, 
the political uh, spectrum that we uh, commonly use. Because on any given issue, even even ourselves as rather consistent libertarians, I'm sure there are some issues where we care about things a little bit differently and maybe parse sure. them parse them from our our different value scales. And you could potentially your dot could potentially move on that on that gradient pretty easily. Um, right. But but yeah, I mean, I I I really do cringe at people like like Gary Johnson, who try to say, oh, well, libertarianism is the best of the right and the best of the left, and we just uh, take them both and roll them up into this really great philosophy. No, it's something completely different, because in the modern day, the left and the right both are basically progressives who are willing to abandon property rights at the first sign of any sort of utilitarian whim. Um, So, yeah, I mean... I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. And yeah, we have these trappings of left and right in America too that really confuse the issues and make them a binary thing when, you know, really it's it's kind of hard to do sometimes. But I, in in all actuality, as a libertarian, it I, I, seems like I'm like adverse to everybody, you know, because <laughs> yeah, we're... Yeah, sometimes seems that way. Because we're, we, like you said, we're part of the 0.01%. Um, so... But, but really, in actuality, I'm for like unity of people in under this like axiom of not hurting each other, and not taking their stuff. So, right. So yeah, I mean, I think that we're just we want the same goals as liberals and conservatives, but uh, we actually have a consistent manner in which we're willing to carry out, uh, you know, uh, taking over the world to leave everyone alone, as it were. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, yes. And I, I appreciate you saying that because we've got our own intellectual lineage and we have common ancestors with both the left and the right, if you like. But um, there's a distinct line of thought, you know, um, through Locke, through Thomas Jefferson, um, Adam Smith, you know, uh, and the, the Austrian economist. Murray Rothbard also being influenced himself by Anne Rand's as contemporary. Um, there, there's a lot of stuff. There is a lineage of thought. Anne Rand saw herself as a product of the Enlightenment, as continuing the Enlightenment project. And um, there, there, there's a, there is an intellectual history there that is distinct and has its common ancestors with, with both the left and the right, but it's its its own distinct philosophy, and it's very, very rigorous in terms of its dedication to principle, and really it's very quite new, historically speaking. I mean, you know, if you want to say we should have a separation of church and state a few hundred years ago, it's like, what are you, crazy? We're talking about people's souls here. You know, they're going to go, you do realize they're going to go to hell. We can't have people, um, we can't have people espousing atheism because it's not about them. I mean, they're going to go to hell anyway. It's the fact that they might also influence other people to be atheists and then they're going to go to hell. So uh, no thanks, you can keep your separation of church and state to yourself kind of thing, you know. And it was James Madison who's very influential and, um, enshrining it, the freedom of re, re, of religion into American culture. And, you know, the, the Randists like to say that um, the Declaration of Independence was 
the most important political doctrine ever written, sorry, document ever written, because it explicitly states that the individual has a right to pursue their own interests, to pursue happiness, the most libertarian idea, you know, that your life for you to pursue your own happiness, not the happiness of the tribe, not the happiness of the community, not that we're against that, you know, but we think like Adam Smith, you know, it's not from the benevolence of the baker that we get bread. Like, you know, my hero, Frederick Bastiat, um, French economist, for anyone who wants an introduction, check out, I think you can get a book called uh, Essays in Political Economy. He wrote extensively about how the interests of men were not antagonistic about how they were mutually beneficial, and this is so important to us as libertarians, the old one, if I swap you a pen for a tie, you obviously prefer the pen, I prefer the tie. A revolutionary idea seems so simple, but remember, how new is this? Because it's your duty to get married to who your parents say. It's your duty to do the job that your parents did and your labour belongs to your lord, it's your duty to go to war because the kingdom needs to be enriched. That's most of human history since the invention of agriculture. agriculture. So don't feel too downhearted that there's only like 0.1% or less of us because our ideas are so new. And it's very, very easy for us to forget that because we're immersed in this culture. And, and some of the freedoms, you know, we got from this, we wrestled. But most of it's because of wealth. I mean, a couple of hundred years ago, most people would have been working for 61 hours a week on a farm. So even putting aside the political freedom to vote, which, you know, we as libertarians, we can debate if it was even a good idea or or. The, the freedom to marry who you choose or the freedom to choose your own profession or the freedom not to give your labor to the feudal lord, the leisure time you enjoy working an average of 38 hours a week rather than 61, the fact that you've got an income to spend on entertainment, on entertaining yourself, all of this is new. And I think that's why we're really struggling as a species because we're struggling, we're suffering for our freedom because our institutions, our schools, our parenting is not equipped to prepare us for the amount of freedom we have in our life. You know? Yeah, absolutely. And that going. I was just going to say, there's a lot to unpack there. And you had brought up Ayn Rand, uh, who, uh, she, uh, you know, she's very Aristotelian, but the one major change that she uh, sort of, uh, you know, created a little bit of a deviation from the traditional Aristotelian philosophy is that, you know, the, the master-slave mentality being like this sort of genetic and inherent thing is BS. She was basically, and that was her huge, uh, 
um, uh, problem with uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. She was she was a major critic of Nietzsche for this very idea that um, that he purported that you know that there's a, a natural tendency for slaves to be slaves and masters to be masters, and she she really took that sort of um, it, one of those those principles that were taken for granted during the Enlightenment and sort of you know uh, uh, critiqued it for some sort of consistency you know and. And yeah, I mean the same with Bastiat. For his time, the 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 material that he put out, it reads like a proto Rothbard. Really, is sort of ahead of its time in the critiques that he's making it's about so the state. So far ahead of his time. And 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 yeah, I mean a lot of minarchists like to use Bastiat and Adam Smith as these examples that minarchism is correct because these guys are so correct. But I don't know. I I almost think that they were in the time that they were in and 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 we live in an age where we we don't rely on some sort of centralized force to get information from here to there information delivery is very decentralized now so i mean that was a huge part of why the state needed to exist to some of these people is because there was no other institution that could be trusted to be at least even remotely impartial or even get these things done so i can kind of see how they would be minarchists in the 1800s but nowadays it's just kind of like well i think that this apparatus of monopoly on violence has sort of outlived its its time much like religion in my point of view i mean i'm an atheist so i see that religion is sort of something that is not no longer relevant to to my life necessarily um as as the ritual itself I definitely, you know, just to get sidetracked on that whole thing, I do see that there is a value in um, this, in the whole puzzle piece of what makes a human and what makes humankind. Um, I, I would never, you know, sort of deny the philosophical underpinnings of what religion is. But anyway, all I'm trying to say is that this was sort of a unifying cultural force back in the biblical days. And I'm not necessarily sure that we can impart any sort of specific knowledge about the world today from you know how to wash your feet correctly or you know which which animals you can eat um so anyway uh, uh basically what i was what i was trying to get at um when i brought up ayn rand was that was uh, reading ayn rand was a really formative uh part of my life where i almost from reading the virtue of selfishness i sort it it clicked for me what self-interest was and how a lot of the problems in my own life had to do with not caring enough for myself. And it wasn't that I was completely selfless and um, devoting my life to other people, but I wasn't doing a good enough job of, of fixing myself. And it's almost become a meme now. Uh, Jordan Peterson, that is, his whole like clean your room thing. But in that little phrase, clean your room, there's a lot more there. There's there's something very deep, very primal about that and about the the nature of what a human is. Um, and I think that's sort of you know just to get right to the point. Um, you you're a, a therapist, and I think you've made uh, a really great contrib- contribution in uh, some of the work that you put out with uh, "Be Yourself and Love It," and 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 sort of what you're getting at is this you know, to, to take control of your life and to love yourself. 
And, you know, and I guess when you get to this sort of critical mass with that phenomenon, right, then that sort of has a downstream effect on the quote unquote collective. As I'm sure you would agree, there is no sort of, you know, the collective doesn't act. That is uh, innumerable numbers of cogs that are working, uh, so many individuals working in synchronicity to make a quote unquote collective. So, so yeah, I mean, just, um, just from the sheer catharsis of the lesson that individualism imparts onto people, I'm just sort of curious, um, and I think I already know the answer to this question, but how has libertarianism informed um, your work as a therapist? Well, interesting. You said you think you know. I'd love to hear what your conclusion you, you've you come to, and I'll, I'll use that as a sounding board. Um, a, go yeah, ahead. What do you, how, how do you think? Um, well, uh, it, from what I've from what I've understood as as to the direction you're going with uh, with procrastin procrastination annihilation and just your general uh, uh, self help course, if uh, if you don't mind me using that term, is that what you would? It, I, I hope you don't feel slighted yeah, yeah, yeah. by using that term <laughs> because no, it's sort no, of no, like no, a loaded no. it's like a loaded <laughs> thing, right? You, like, have, you have to call it something, right? You know what I mean, you can call it. Personal development, self-help, human enrichment—you can call it. You know, you have to call it something. Right. So. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, um, you you very clearly show that you were an imperfect person in this, which I I feel like I'll, in the self-help um, sort of area, there's this sort of like uh, there's like this argument from authority that the author is always speaking from that you know, that he's got it all figured out and he has the answers. If you just, uh, you know, go through this specific ritual every morning, you will be a successful, uh, you know, CEO of a, of a startup in Silicon Valley or something like that. Yeah, you know but what, what I mean? if you can't? What if you can't do the same as he's done? Yeah. What if you can't bring yourself to do it? So that's the problem that I try and solve in my free book, Procrastination Annihilation, which people can get at beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash do it. But please continue with what you were saying. You are sort of getting, extracting out of the, of the reader the machinations or the process within themselves that can work for them. And I think that's very much in the spirit of what we would consider a quote-unquote free market or just the market in general, which uh, doesn't need any sort of uh, prescription. It just happens, you know? And it's almost like you're trying to um, to, to cultivate an or organic form of order and... and uh, self-love in in uh, in the direction that you're uh, sort of going with um, with the material that you're putting out for therapy. Where am I wrong and where am I right? <laughs> I don't know. I just it's nice to hear you speak about. It. I really appreciate that. I think yeah, I don't even know what to say. You're completely right in the fact that the origin, the individual acts, the collective doesn't act. And whether you want to improve the world or you want to step into the world and know that you've got what it takes to make your dreams ha happen or to create a product or to write a book or uh, a song or, or, you know, go out and meet a great woman or 
something, you know, you just turned up here. And even if you want to be a tool for improving the world, you need to sharpen your tool, right? And it's just for people to take, to realize that as individuals, like, this is it, you know, this is your life, like, take it seriously. If you do that, it's just like, you mentioned Jordan Peterson, he says something really great, you know, tidy up your room, because become, work to become a responsible person, even for altruistic reasons, you can do that, because then when someone in the family dies, you're capable of organizing the funeral, and that's a load off everyone else's back, do you know what I mean, and it's like, people are very caught up in, say, politics, for example, as a means of changing the world, and fine, okay, we all do it sometimes, it would be nice to spend half as much time as you're spending on hot politics, improving your own life, because if your own life's improved, then you'll be more of a help to the people around you, not that, the only reason why you should do it is because it's helpful to the people around you, but if you need that as an excuse to help yourself, it can help people along, uh, Anne Rand's lover, Nathaniel, for a short time, Nathaniel Brand, and he was a very prominent um, self-help author, and he wrote on largely on the philosophy of self-esteem and uh, self-love, the psychology um, of of those and uh, romantic love. And I think he really was talking about taking responsibility and how your life's important. I mean, if you can put it in a libertarian sort of context, most of the restraints on your life if you're lucky enough to live in a first world country are internal rather than external you know you want to uh, write a book but you're too anxious or you're not a good enough writer or you can't get you you feel foggy in the morning or you want to go out and attract a nice woman but you eat badly and you're you don't take any exercise and you're socially anxious and you know Whatever it is, you know, you you want to be able to play guitar like Eric Clapton, but you don't have the attention span. Whatever it is, right? It's not the government stopping you from achieving your dreams. It's your own. It's yourself. And you want to get good relationships, good friends that will support you. So I guess that's my libertarian take on it. I feel I could take it further and say the reason why people believe in the state is they don't feel like adults. They don't feel like they're ready to make a good living, they don't feel like they're ready to um, attract the right partner and um, they don't feel like they're ready to protect themselves if someone attacks them and so even if they don't know that, their body knows that and their psychology is affected by that, you know, I'm working on my body because I've been a weedy guy my whole life but most, if a tiger came up after you, you wouldn't be able to run up a tree to save yourself from it eating you. Now, you might not care or think about that, but your body knows it because this body was evolved to be lean, muscular, and to be able to defend itself. So if you've not got these things, you feel insecure. So what happens when you feel insecure? You want someone to protect you, and who's the ultimate projection of that? It's the state. So I think a truly empowered society, or rather a society full of truly empowered individuals would not have such great demands for the state or even non-state abuses which we allow you know and um so you if you want to contribute to that great way you know become a good example live your life well sharpen your tool bring yourself to your p potential 
show people what they can do with their life and teach them. If you learn anything useful, don't keep it to yourself. Share it with people. Yeah, and I mean, uh, just setting aside just even libertarianism, just like in your interactions with people, people who want to manipulate you, people who want to take advantage of you, they're relying on your own insecurity and your own lack of confidence in yourself to take advantage of you and make you do things that you potentially wouldn't do for them. Um, so I would even say that, I mean, I'm not trying to like um, pigeonhole your work, you know, too, too much into libertarianism because it's a lot more than that. It's just about like being your own damn person and, and, and yeah, just like taking control of your own life. Um, and, and I can think of no better way to give people who want to see you fail the middle finger than just to like go and do it, man. So, so yeah, I just love, and I love this sort of like self-help kind of, um, uh, phenomenon. And if, if I could, I'd like to tell you a little bit of background about myself. Uh, um, so when I was younger, I, I've always had problems. Like I was diagnosed with ADHD. So, I mean, as I become an adult, I've had to deal with a lot of, you know, uh, symptoms downstream from that. I've never necessarily went to a psychiatrist ever since I was a, a teenager, but you know, I wasn't on insurance as a young person and, and things like that. So I never really had access to any sort of like professional, uh, uh, mental health. And, you know, I almost think that that's for the better, at least for my own self, I didn't have any sort of like deeply neurotic or psychotic problems. So luckily for me, self-help was an option. Um, so, um, I had, I, I just kind of went on a bender of, of reading self-help books and a lot of really interesting ones, ones from like the sixties, like Freudian psychology, like hypnosis books and things like that, just a, all kinds of interesting stuff. And just taking, you know, even if I only got one little, uh, nugget of wisdom from some sort of irrelevant book, you know, um, I could apply that to my own life and, and sort of built this self-defense mechanism. Uh, from all of these self-help books that I read. And I mean, some of them were, some of them were really, weren't even self-help books, like a uh, a philosophy book that I had on the uh, phenomenon of paradox. Um, that was really surprisingly a really formative read for me. Um, I read a book on just the concept of solitude and how, you know, that was really something that like solidified my individualist tendencies. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that there's a really big role, uh, to play as, as, as a, a type of media in the self-help field. I, I'm just really thrilled to see, uh, a, a fellow libertarian being able to get into that because, you know, I worry that sometimes libertarians come off as this cold inhuman sort of, uh, movement, you know, and, and I can see why, because we're all so intellectually rigorous and we all want to win arguments so hard that I think people just normies, if you will, are a little bit confused by us and sort of um, sort of think that we don't necessarily care about other people. But um, but I think that that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, the way I see it and the way that my fellow libertarians see it, we're the vanguard of individual freedom. So. I mean, yeah, I just, I just really like um, seeing people putting out the tools for people to help themselves. So, 
So yeah, not really a question there, just sort of spitballing. <laughs> oh no, I deeply appreciate that. That please spitball away. Yeah, no, you're, it's music to my ears, man. So, and yeah, and, go on. And I, I was just gonna say, like, I mean, just from reading like the intro to to your ebook, you're talking about all of this creative, all these creative endeavors that you've had in your life, and, um, you know, it's just it just shows the human side of of you know uh, people within this movement. So. So I, I just really like seeing like you, for example, I mean, just picking one of one of the examples when you were um, when you were young, you gave a demo CD to um, to a DJ and, you know, you could have gotten yourself, uh, you could have, you know, sort of gotten into some sort of music career uh, at that time in, in the electronic world. And um, so, so, yeah, I mean, there are just all sorts of one of the lessons that I see just in the intro here is just sort of you showing these missed opportunities in your own life and um, sort of reflecting on, you know, not like a regret necessarily, but um, if you would have done things differently, you know, and then that, that's how we learn, right? I mean, we look back at our, uh, the mistakes that we feel like we've made and and improve on our behavior to so that that pain that pain doesn't happen again. What's that? Better because there's no going back. So yeah, exactly. Time is linear and it only goes one direction. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah, I mean, just what what does all of this mean to you, Anthony? I guess I would like people to get the useful stuff that I've learned without going through as much suffering as I've gone through to learn it. I think that's the bottom line. Like Some of the suffering was necessary, but a lot of it wasn't. And I'd, if I'd had someone wise around to point me in the right directions, yeah, I still probably would have made mistakes, and sometimes I, I'd ignore that person. But it would definitely have saved me from making that mistake once or you know, two or three times more because I'd go, oh, damn, that person was right. I should have listened harder. And, um, yeah, this book, Procrastination Annihilation, it's free. Get it at beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash do it. As you can, as you alluded to, I mentioned some of the ways that procrastination made me miss opportunities. There's nothing in it that presents me as bulletproof. And I know the methods in the book work because they are how I personally went from being very, very procrastinatory to much, much less procrastinatory and continue that work. And it's a very practical method. There's nothing like woo-woo or there's no there's no miracles. It's not going to take you from being a chronic procrastinator to being super productive overnight. But that just goes to show that it's a realistic method it's it's a method for helping you become gradually more and more and more conscientious and uh, if you apply the method you will definitely improve you don't go from like being a weedy guy to being buff in the gym just because you go three times a week uh, for the next month and it's the same as that it's more like a gem for conscientiousness. It gives you the exercises that you can take at your own pace to gradually bring up, build up your muscles. And really, it's the best thing I've written so far. I mean, it took me 15 years of writing to be able to write this book because 
if I may say so, the tone is lovely, delicious, easy to read. It spreads like butter. It takes effort to come across that effortless, and I doubt that I could have done it a year earlier. My writing's always improving. Uh, it's short. It, you can read it in two hours, so you will enjoy to read. It's got jokes in it, and it's got a nice structure. You know, I begin by telling my story and my struggles with procrastination, and then I go into a section on the kind of mindsets that you may experience and that might get you down if you're a procrastinator, and then I go on to the practical nuts and bolts. Not that the psychological part isn't practical and as well. In fact, most of the emails I've gotten feedback on the book have been to say, this section, they copy, they copy me a section. It's like you're reading my mind. Like I've had quite a few, a few emails saying that, which is very satisfying. So what it means to me is an opportunity for people to live more of their potential, give their gifts, take their life seriously, and be able to live the life they imagine for themselves because if we get everyone doing that or more people doing that everyone else stands to gain we stand to gain from you giving your gifts uh, and I would like you know we're here for such a short time it would be nice you know if you've got an idea if you could take yourself to the conscientiousness gem so that you can bring that idea to fruition absolutely and I am going to have to dedicate myself to read this book because like I told you, I I didn't necessarily read it before we had this conversation, but I really do need it. I mean, just this experience with getting ready for this interview is uh, sort of proof to me that <laughs> that I definitely could stand to gain from this. And, you know, as I was looking through one of the one of the tenets of the book is meditation, which is something that you know, that was one of the useful tools that I got from self-help books that I was talking about. Um, just being able, and especially with the unique problems that I have with my own brain chemistry and things like that, I need time to like recharge and I don't ever think that I need it when, I'm, when I've got all of these tasks that I need to complete. But to realize that by taking an extra 10, 20 minutes out of a day and, um, and just focusing on your breath can really make you a much more, um, you know, you get a lot more profit out of life, as it were, if you're uh, going to, uh, if you could take those, you know, just small little, um, it's small little routines in your day to, uh, to, to give yourself time to, to center yourself. So, I mean, yeah, this is all really reminiscent of uh, some wisdom that I could uh, reignite um, from, from, you know, reading in, in, in the past when I was trying to learn how to become an adult. So, um, so yeah, I mean, just as far as my perception on, on the book and the importance of it, there is a, yeah. Yeah. I think you will. Enjoy. I've got to get into I it. I think you'll enjoy it. Don't turn it into a chore because if you turn it into a chore, you won't <laughs> want to read it. Just, um, Absolutely. Uh, read 20 pages, uh, there, there or so. And, um, 10, even 10 pages, there's some jokes right up front. So once you get into the tone of it, you'll want to, you'll want to continue reading, I'm sure. Um, I have a podcast on personal development issues, Be Yourself and Love It podcast. Those who listen can find it on iTunes. 
if you want, you can download the book first, uh, beyourselfandloveit.com forward slash do it, and it's got links to everything in, in, inside the ebook. So um, for those who would like to hear more from me, I'd be more than happy to furnish you with more media <laughs> in between listening to Subversion podcast, of course. <laughs> Very good. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down and talk to me, Anthony. This has been really great, and I hope to talk to you again sometime. Yeah, wonderful. I've had a really lovely time, Trey, and thank you so much for inviting me in your show. And I've, yeah, I've just really, really enjoyed myself.